Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and 7th, a production of Forum Communications. I'm James Walner. This podcast contains content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Before we start, a very quick note to avoid confusion. This podcast is titled The House on Sweet and Seventh, but really there are two houses in this story. To be clear, you've not really been introduced to The House on Sweet and Seventh yet. You will be in this episode, though, episode two. In episode one, we traveled with Detective Bob Haas to a different house, the crime scene at 245 Laredo Drive. Laredo Drive sits on the south side of Bismarck in a fairly quiet neighborhood of family homes. This is where the Ericsduds lived. This is where one of the assailants, the Ericsduds' son, Brian, grew up. This is the main crime scene. The other house, the house in the title of this podcast, sits in downtown Bismarck, on the corner of East Sweet Avenue and South 7th Street. Now, South 7th Street is a busy one-way thoroughfare. It shoots down from the Capitol building, and along the way you would pass Bismarck High School, a hospital, the Radisson Hotel, McDonald's, the Bismarck Event Center, Denny's Restaurant, Target, the Kirkwood Mall, Barnes & Noble. You get the picture. Standing outside of that house, or just next to it, in the parking lot of A&B Pizza, a kid with a really good arm could probably hit the side of the Bismarck Event Center with a rock. It's just that close. It sits there somewhat out of place among all those commercial buildings. Hopefully, that helps avoid any confusion about houses. Although, I say you have not been introduced to the house on Sweet and 7th yet, but that's not 100% accurate either. Remember last time, in episode one, when we started off with a 17-year-old sleeping Bismarck boy and the 16-year-old girl in her little red car who comes to wake him up? Ryan, wake up, she says. Well, Ryan was sleeping in this house at East Sweet Avenue. Ryan Werner lived there, and he was the brother of Amy Werner, that 17-year-old girl who went to the police, sending officers to perform a welfare check down at the Ericstead home on Laredo Drive. Finally, I'd like to say that the current residents of these two homes have no association with this story. So, with all that said, let's get back to it. By midday Friday, a whole lot of action was taking place in Bismarck, North Dakota. The state's attorney's office was preparing a search warrant for the house on Laredo Drive so that Sergeant Haas and others could begin processing the crime scene. A statewide and then nationwide teletype was put out to law enforcement for 18-year-old Brian Ericsted and 27-year-old Robert Lawrence, as well as descriptions of the two missing Ericsted vehicles, the Cadillac and the new pickup. And over at the Bismarck Police Department, a car pulled into the employee parking lot driven by Detective Lloyd Halverson. In all my years on the streets of Bismarck, I never lost a lot of sleep other than a handful of times. Um, I lost some sleep during this investigation. I'm Lloyd Halverson. I'm a 
currently the Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs at Lake Region State College in Devils Lake, North Dakota. I worked for Bismarck Police Department from 1992 until 2002. Friday morning, uh, I get called into work to help with a, a serious incident that had occurred. And uh, when I met with my investigative commander and uh, other higher-ups at the police department, they started to tell me what they knew. And uh, when they told me who they suspected, uh, was involved, Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickstead, I knew immediately where to look. Detective Halverson happened to know that Robert Lawrence lived with his girlfriend, 18-year-old Michelle Werner, and her family. It was that house on the corner of East Sweet Avenue and South 7th Street, right next to a popular pizza restaurant named A&B. Also living there were 17-year-old Amy Werner and her twin brother Ryan, as well as their younger sister and their mother Pam and her boyfriend Dan, better known as Weasel. 18-year-old Brian Erickstead, Amy's boyfriend, had also just moved into the house. In addition to all of these people, the small house was also home to an occasional runaway. All the teenagers lived downstairs in the basement, while the adults and youngest daughter lived upstairs. It's actually uh, just a couple of blocks from the police department. Um, you, you come right out of the police department at 700 South 9th Street and, uh, and go straight north a little ways, and it's right there on South 7th Street. It was, I, I was there several times, and it only took about 30 seconds to get there. And I knew that that address was going to be um, crucial to the investigation. I, I've been to that house a lot. I dealt with the family a lot. And every time that there was a crime in the neighborhood, anywhere right around there, that's kind of became the focus. Yeah, I mean, these kids were um, basically provided with a location to drink and do drugs, commit crime, uh, without any consequence. People were allowed to hide from authorities there. I don't know if I would say it was a party house, but it was definitely a house where there wasn't any consequences. There was a exit door near Ryan's bedroom where you could just sneak out at will. Not that they had to sneak out, but uh, you could literally just get out of bed and walk outside in three or four steps. And I think there was a lot of people coming and going um, in and out that door. In fact, Detective Halverson had been at this house just the previous day, on Thursday afternoon. And suddenly it occurred to him that something he had witnessed there then now took on new meaning and a much heightened importance. I had been there on Thursday afternoon uh, arresting two runaways, uh, David and Carol. And, uh, and when I was in one of the bedrooms where one of the runaways was hiding, I had seen a, a bloody shirt. And I relayed that right away to the commanders, and I said, we've got to get back to that house. Another thing Detective Halverson and his colleagues had learned on that previous day while arresting runaways was that Amy's brother, Ryan, had skipped school that day, and he'd been hanging out with 27-year-old Robert Lawrence. Detective Halverson was assigned to locate Ryan Werner and to find out what he might know. The detective pointed his vehicle towards East Suite Avenue, just a couple blocks away. He wasn't at home, and so I went up to the high school and uh, 
I found him in the parking lot uh, talking to his mother and her boyfriend. Um, and uh, ultimately, we went back to the police department. I followed him there, and we began to visit. I asked Lloyd Halverson if he found it odd that Pam and her boyfriend were up at the high school that day talking to Ryan in the school parking lot. You know, it's hard to find anything that's not odd about this entire situation and the relationship that uh, she had with her children and their friends, almost like an alternate reality. Um, you know, the, the key thing I think is that all of these kids, including Pam, they know right from wrong, but they have trouble with loyalty, and loyalty to friends, loyalty to significant others, and uh, it takes them a while to come around to tell the truth. And so, Detective Halverson followed Ryan, Pam, and her boyfriend, Weasel, to the police department for the first of several interviews with Ryan Werner. You know, Ryan was largely defiant the first time I interviewed him. Um, I talked to him. He wasn't willing to tell on his friends. He was very adamant. He was not going to say anything. He was not going to tell me what I, what I, what I needed to know. Um, he asked for a lawyer before answering any more questions from me, and ultimately I, I allowed him to leave the interview room. I, I sat him out uh, in the lobby area of our investigative unit in a chair. I said, okay, I'm going to visit with your mom for a bit. Um, just hang tight. And ultimately he just got up and left. Meanwhile, over at the Ericsted home on Laredo Drive, Sergeant Haas and his team were processing the crime scene. I called for some assistance to come down, and I think uh, ended up with three more detectives down there. And I told them, I said, bring the major crime scene kits, because I explained to them what we had and stuff. And this is different than the crime scene kits that we carried in each one of the cars, because it contained specialized equipment, more equipment and stuff like that. And uh, back in the 90s, I mean, we thought we were technologically advanced, but really, you take a look back on it right now, and it, it's nothing like you see on TV. Our biggest thing was that we were going to take photos, and we were going to do a videotape of the entire crime scene. Mark and I went in, and that's the first thing that we did, is we walked through the crime in the entire house, and he videoed everything, and we focused in on the blood in the hallway, we focused in on the blood in, in the bedroom, in the mess in the bedroom, and we went into the kitchen because when we went into the kitchen and we looked into the sink, lo and behold, what do we find? But there, I think there was three knives in, in the kitchen, in the sink, and one of the knives, the blade was broken. We didn't really put much importance to that at the time, but later on we found out why that blade, that particular blade was broken. While Sergeant Haas and others processed the crime scene inside the Ericsted home, outside, another detective named Steve Siseski started canvassing the neighborhood. Just across the street, a neighbor was standing outside. Shelley Wiley told him, I don't recall seeing the Ericsteds all week. They keep to themselves. Gordon drives a new pickup, extended cab. It's tan or champagne colored. There's a group of kids that come and go to the house when the parents are at work. I'll give my husband a call and see if he's seen anything. Detective Siseski continued canvassing. He hit 238 and 226 Laredo, then 308 and 319. Nobody home. 
Mrs. Wiley emerged from her home again and told him she'd spoken with her husband. On Tuesday night, he'd been outside scrubbing garbage cans when he witnessed Gordon Erickstead having a very intense conversation with a young person he described as, quote, a punk kid in grunge clothing. 256 Laredo, a man named Chris, says he'd seen Brian Erickstead Wednesday night outside of the house. He was in a dark blue four-door car with other kids. Then Dave Couther, 244 Laredo. Last I saw was when Barbara Erickstead left for work just before 6 a.m. on Tuesday. She was driving her blue Cadillac. At 233 Laredo, an 11-year-old kid remembered something. He said just yesterday, Thursday, at around 4.30 in the afternoon, he'd seen two people in a little red car parked across the street from the Erickstead's house, and the people, they looked like the kind of kids that would be Brian's friends. More telling was another story that a neighbor shared. He said a couple weeks earlier, he had heard Brian having a loud argument with his mother on the back deck of their home. He said he could hear the argument all the way down to his house and that Brian was yelling at his mother using the F word, calling her a bitch. As Detective Sisesky's canvassing came to an end, the Bismarck Police Department received some news. The Erickstead's Cadillac had already been found that morning abandoned in a field near Fargo. Bismarck Police Department told Cass County, get a locksmith over there ASAP and get that trunk popped open. Find out if anything or anyone is inside. A locksmith did his magic and three officers watched as the trunk swung open underneath the North Dakota sun. Nothing. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. At the police department, Detective Halverson was questioning Ryan's mother, Pam. Her son, Ryan, had left the building on his own accord. He was not under arrest, but his failure to cooperate raised suspicion. What did Ryan know? Was he involved? Did he know where Gordon and Barbara Erickstad were? Ryan's mother, Pam, shared what she knew with the detective. She explained that Brian Erickstad had moved into her home two days earlier. Brian slept with his 17-year-old daughter, Amy, in her downstairs bedroom, while 27-year-old Robert Lawrence slept in her other daughter's room, 18-year-old Michelle. She told the detectives that yesterday, Thursday, Robert and Brian had been around the house at 8 a.m. Robert was driving a brand new truck. That was the last time she had seen them. Her daughter, Amy, had skipped school yesterday. Her son, Ryan, had skipped half a day of school as well. She thought that yesterday, all of them, the two suspects, Brian and Robert, and her kids, Amy, Michelle, and Ryan Werner, had left town at about 11 a.m. and driven 60 miles northwest to the little town of Stanton, North Dakota. With them were two of their friends, two girls named Candy and Misty. They all drove up to Stanton to visit their friend J.J., who was in the county jail. Detective Halverson told Pam he'd seen a bloody shirt the day before in her house when he was arresting the two runaways. 
he asked for permission to search her home without a warrant. Pam said it was all right with her, but they'd have to drive back to the house and ask her boyfriend, Weasel, for his permission. Around this time, a phone call came in to the Bismarck Police Department from neighboring Mercer County. Lieutenant Witt took the call. The caller said, Saw the teletype you're looking for Brian Erickstead? He was here yesterday with some girls to visit someone we have in custody here. Did they sign the login book? The girls, I mean, the lieutenant asked. Sure did. Amy Werner, Bismarck. Misty Jones, New Salem. Candy Olszewski, Bismarck. The lieutenant jotted down the new names, Misty Jones and Candy Olszewski. Before hanging up, he asked, I don't suppose you have their phone numbers in that logbook of yours, do you? For the third time in less than 24 hours, Detective Lloyd Halverson drove his car back towards the house on East Sweet Avenue. This time, instead of looking for runaways, he was embarking on a quest to locate a bloody shirt. A 30-second car ride does not allow for much contemplation, but it's more than enough time to squeeze in a little prayer. Lloyd Halverson had been doing a lot of praying that year, and a lot of driving. Earlier that year, his one-and-a-half-year-old daughter had been diagnosed with cancer of both kidneys and given just a 15% chance of surviving. Lloyd and his wife Cindy, along with their three-year-old son, spent countless hours along Interstate 94 that year, driving from Bismarck, North Dakota, to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. 1998 was a most stressful year for this 30-year-old father, husband, and detective. As he stepped out of his vehicle, in front of the house on East Suite Avenue, perhaps he welcomed this distraction from his personal life. On the other hand, on that beautiful morning, he had no idea that the world which we all live in was about to become even more difficult to fully comprehend. Pam Werner's boyfriend, Dan Raywald, a.k.a. Weasel, was only partially keen on the police searching their home. He said... You can search the house all you want, but not the garage. While the police searched her home for a bloody t-shirt, Pam Werner embarked on a search of her own. She went looking for her son, Ryan, who had fled the police interview earlier. At first, Detective Halverson could not find the bloody t-shirt he'd seen the day before. But soon enough, Pam Werner returned to the house with her son, Ryan, and she informed them all that Ryan knew quite a bit about some murders and where the bodies might be, and he was willing to talk. Pam found Ryan over at True Value Hardware and brought him to the residence. And uh, Ryan asked if we had found what we were looking for yet. He knew I had seen this uh, bloody shirt in Amy's bedroom uh, when I was there arresting the runaways. And uh, he led me down to his room and behind a chair pulled out a Dan's supermarket bag um, that had some bloody clothes in it, um, some blue jeans, tennis shoes, T-shirt. And, uh, and I knew this was a really big piece. So I bring Ryan and Pam uh, back down to the police department. We decide we need to talk at a, at a greater length about what Ryan knew and who told him what. And uh, it sounded like, for the most part, Ryan um, had received a lot of information from Robert Lawrence. Um, Robert had disclosed most of what happened. 
Ryan Werner told Detective Halverson that his sister's boyfriends, Robert Lawrence and Brian Erickstead, had woken him up at 5.30 a.m. early Thursday morning. They told him to get up and come outside the house through the exit door leading out towards South 7th Street. Sitting in the A&B parking lot was Gordon Erickstead's brand new pickup truck. Brian and Robert then told him that they had killed Brian's parents and the bodies were in the back of that truck. Robert Lawrence said something like, Smells like death, doesn't it? And then added, The two stiffs are in the back. The bed of the pickup had a hard top cover over it, and Ryan claimed that he never looked at the bodies himself. He told Detective Halverson that Brian and Robert told him that he needed to come along with them to help them dump the bodies, but Ryan told them that he couldn't do that because he had to go to school in the morning. The following is from videotape-recorded interviews Detective Halverson conducted with Ryan Werner and his mother, Pam. He's like... He goes, it smells like death, doesn't it? I'm like, what do you mean by that? He goes, yeah, there's two stiffs in the back. I don't know, Robert, just like, let's go. Let's go, we need to move my bodies. I'm like, I don't know, I can't, I got school in the morning. He looked at me for a minute, he's like, oh, that's right, you gotta go to school tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, he's like, okay, then, then they left. Ryan told Detective Halverson that after Robert and Brian left, he went back to sleep. He said that Robert and Brian returned to the house at about 8 a.m., Brian came inside and went to sleep in Amy's bed, while Robert Lawrence gave Ryan a ride to Bismarck High School in the shiny new pickup. On the way to school, Robert Lawrence told Ryan Werner that they had killed the Ericsteads by stabbing them with kitchen knives. Ryan then added that Brian had been talking about killing his parents for at least two weeks. As disturbing as that information was, Ryan and his mother then shared something else that was just as shocking. At least 12 people knew about this crime had known since yesterday. When they left, the bodies in the back of the truck, did anybody else go with them? Not that I know of. Who else had knowledge about what happened? There's like 12 people. There's a lot of people that know. How many go on? 12. And they are? Me, Robert, Brian, Amy, Michelle. That's right. Amy. Detective Halverson went to work attempting to figure out if Ryan was telling the full truth. Did Ryan really go back to bed, or did he help them dump the bodies? Did he take part in the murders? What was the real story? And most pending, if they were killed, where were the bodies of Gordon and Barbara Erickson? Ryan Werner told the detective the bodies were in the desert. The desert was not a real desert, but rather a popular swimming spot south of Bismarck along the Missouri River. We talked at length about possibly 40 miles south of Bismarck, um, near the desert where they had frequented. Um, we spent a lot of time on, on where the bodies were, and he kept telling us that uh, Robert had told him that they had dumped the bodies 40 miles south of Bismarck. Um, I don't think uh, Robert ever said that they dumped them at the desert. I think that's what Ryan assumed based upon their previous travels together and where they had gone to party or where they had gone to drink together. 
Who told you that they were down at the desert? That's what Robert and Brian told me. They told you that they put the body. They told me they said 40 miles south of town by the desert. So I, either they're in the desert or they're a little ways further than that. So and I, all I was told sure. last night was that they that Robert and Brian were gone fishing last night. They have to be down by the river somewhere. It has to be. I went know. Down by the rope swing. The rope swing? That's where the... Possibly. Possibly? Why do you think possibly by the ropes? Water in the desert. They put them in a field though, or they put them in the water? They didn't put them in the water. They put them on land. As the interview went on, um, I got the impression though that uh, Ryan may have actually been at the residence. And, um, and perhaps others. They wanted me to go with my signal. They want to take three of my kids. And that's what I really wanted to get to the bottom of, is not as much about who said what to whom, but who actually saw what took place. And that's what, what I was trying to get at. That's what I wanted Ryan to tell me. He did not want to go there. And as the interview progressed, he got more nervous. He got more agitated. He started... Uh, just really moving his hands, and I could tell I was on to something. Um, I wasn't looking for DJ, DJ Mama. As far as I know, it was just Robert Brian. They told me before they did it, and then I didn't think they were gonna do it. So I went to sleep, they came back at about five o'clock in the morning, and they told me they did it. I could tell yeah, that he knew more than he was letting on. It wasn't just about what he was told. It's what he knew to be true. Meanwhile, the Bismarck Police Department received the first of many anonymous phone calls. This caller said, Hey, there's this girl named Christy boasting at Bismarck High School she knows all about these murders. In a different room at the police station, another teenager was being interviewed and she was not cooperating. Her name was Candace, but everyone called her Candy, and she was 17 years old. Candy's name had come up because just the day before, she had spent most of the day with the two suspects, Brian Erickstead and Robert Lawrence. In Candy's own words, Brian Erickstead was one of her closest friends. Candy was even less eager to talk than was Ryan Werner. She was interviewed by Detective Troy Shaner. I met with him in July of the year 2020. It was just a, it was a difficult time. It was a, it was a difficult group of people to deal with. And, you know, those types of crimes, you just never forget. I, I got to work and... And my lieutenant told me, uh, you know, we had a double homicide. And, and then when, you know, the interview started, it was, it was apparent to me right away that she was withholding a lot of information. And it was upsetting to me and it was strange to me because of, this, like I said, the seriousness of, of what transpired. And it wasn't um, a theft. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't smoking cigarettes. It wasn't, you know, a misdemeanor. You know, it was what it was. And it was just... 
it was hard to, you know, accept that they were so defensive about answering any questions because of the loyalty they had to their friends. And what did Candy know at this point? Ultimately, a frustrated yet determined Detective Shaner would slowly draw the truth out of her, but it took him almost three hours and just about all the patience a person might be expected to muster. She was never accused of anything other than attempting to hinder the investigation during this very interview, and yet she pretty much went down kicking and screaming before she finally came clean. In fact, for all of these people, it seemed that not narking on a friend, even a friend who had committed the most heinous of crimes, or perhaps a friend who helped cover one up, not narking was the only thing that mattered to them. I don't understand it. I, I, I don't. I mean, a narc in an for me would be would be something where I'm not going to tell you who my supplier is for my drugs. I'm not going to tell you who gave me the booze. I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you who who busted into that pharmaceutical place because I need that. I do not understand how it goes from that narc to I'm not going to tell you who killed two people. Detective Shaner asked Candy if she was hanging out at the house on East Suite on Wednesday night, the night of the murders. She said that she had been. In fact, she'd spent the night there. She slept on Ryan's waterbed. There were two runaways sleeping in that room, too, she said. There had been a bunch of people partying that night at the house, she added. Too many to even remember. Over the course of the investigation, many people associated with the house on Suite Avenue would be asked about that Wednesday The sum of these police reports and interviews make for an interesting inside look, a snapshot of a different side of Bismarck, North Dakota. It was a day of swimming at the river, drinking, smoking pot and doing other drugs, shoplifting, stealing beer, disrupting Alcoholic Anonymous meetings, and more. We will look closer at that day, Wednesday, in a later episode. Regarding Thursday, though, the day after the murders, Candy did admit that she'd gone to Stanton, North Dakota, to see a friend in jail. She went there with three other people, Amy Werner, Brian Erickstead, and a friend named Misty Jones. Misty drove them up there in her little red Geo Metro. But the more Detective Shaner asked about the specifics of that day, the more Candy started to clam up. It was so intense with those younger people and their parents, because you know the seriousness of the offense, but... And I believe the parents knew the seriousness of the offense, but the younger kids didn't seem to realize what had transpired even after the fact, even after the two were arrested. They seemed to just maintain their loyalty. Detective Shaner attempted to explain the seriousness of this event and warned her about hindering a law enforcement investigation. Candy finally gave Detective Shaner a lot more information, but she held on very tightly to one last nugget of truth, as if her life depended on it. Sure, she said. Sure, she had known about the murder since yesterday. Michelle Werner had told her all about it. In fact, Candy had seen the bloody clothes in Ryan's room. She knew that knives had been used to kill the Ericsteads, knew the bodies had been dumped somewhere, knew Robert and Brian had killed them. But that was all she knew. And now, she said, now I've told you everything, and I'd like to go home. Detective Shaner sensed that Candy was withholding information, something very important. Every time he asked Candy if anyone had helped Robert and Brian, Candy paused before saying, I don't know. And Detective Troy Shaner didn't believe her. Ironically, though, 
while the Bismarck Police Department was attempting to extract the truth out of young people in interrogation rooms. Just a few blocks to the north at Bismarck High School, the details of the murders had been bouncing off of the walls and classrooms and hallways all day long. And for once, at around 3 p.m., one young person who heard something did something. She came forward. This is Marcy Mesmer-Bartosh. On that Friday, she was a senior at Bismarck High School. So um, I was in class, and like I said, my friend, she, um, I can't even remember what class we were in, but she started telling me that she, um, some Misty girl, and I don't remember who this Misty person is, but that this Misty had told her that this Brian and his friend Robert had killed his parents and that they were drunk and they wanted, like, to steal, like, Brian's dad's truck. And so, and I think I think they were on drugs or something, too, is what the Rumorville was or what have you. Um, and that they went over there and then, um, I guess, Robert, like, told Brian to distract his dad and then... Robert like stabbed him or something and then it was told that like he he did he stab his mom or slit her throat or something and then apparently they put the bodies in the back of this truck and anyways and then it sounded like they like kind of joyrided it around in his dad's pickup with these bodies and then I was told that they were dumped somewhere like on some farmland or, or outside the town, but like wasn't really sure. So anyways, after I got told this, I worked for the um, clerk of court's office during that time. So every day after school, I went there. And so when I went there, I started talking with the ladies I work with. And I was like, oh, my God, I like this is what I got told today. And so they're like, you know, you should probably go like, talk to the state's attorneys or what have you so they had me go down there and I talked with two different guys and just basically told them what I had been told earlier that day from my friend in class. Meanwhile Detective Halverson kept working on getting the truth out of 17 year old Ryan Werner. But during the course of those conversations I was trying to put a timetable together in my head about what happened and what time people came and left from the Pam's house at 701 East Suite and when Ryan was home and when he wasn't home. And as I got into that, he told me that he had went to the residence. And he kind of said it, I think, by accident. I, we drove by it afterwards. You drove by the house? Afterwards, but it was like, we, it was like the next day. Me and Robert, me, Robert, and Brian. Next day. It was yeah. the same day, just later. Yeah, it was the same day. No, it was that night. It was last night that we drove by. Last night? Yeah. Not, no. I can't remember what time it was. But uh, it was pretty dark out. He told me that it was dark. He told me that, that he had gone there with Robert and Brian. But they, according to the timeline, they had already left. You saw Robert last night? Yeah. Now you said he left well, he, at 5 o'clock. Well, yeah, he left at 5 o'clock, but... You said that Ryan... You said that Robert and Brian left the town. It might have been that morning, too, because it was like... I don't know. You said it was dark when you drove by. 
This was last night. Are they still in town? No, they're gone. Did they leave today? No, they left yesterday about five o'clock. How did you go down there last night then with them? I went down there. You said you, Robert, and Brian went back down to the house last night. It was. I think it might have been. I think it was early, earliest. It might. It, yeah, it was like. He said they stopped at your house at one o'clock in the morning. They were at morning. Time they left. Then they left to go do it. They came back at five thirty. Told you they were going to go dump the bodies. I want you to come with. They came back about eight. They washed up, whatever, and then they took you to school. Robert took me to school. Robert took you to school. And then suddenly Ryan is saying that he saw fresh blood on some stairs at the Ericstead home. I think it, it might have been right after they did it, because you, it was still like, this stuff, it was, the blood was like still running stuff, but it's like went down the stairs and there's a big puddle. You were in the house? No, I was I looked, I, I didn't go in the house. I was in the house. I looked through the window beside the door, the front door, the main door. So now you're, you're saying that they, they did it. And then they came back to your house, and you went down there with them? I did. Before they went to dump the bodies? No, I didn't go in and pick up the dead bodies. <clears throat> and then Ryan reveals something else, something of great importance to the investigation. He says that Brian and Robert did not drive themselves to the Ericstead home to commit the crimes. Someone had given them a ride. Of course, Ryan claims he doesn't know who that person is. He holds on and holds on and holds on. Never narc. Never narc, never ever narc. They left. I don't. I don't know. I don't even know who they left to go down there. Somebody dropped them off down there. I, I don't know who dropped them off down there. Do it or what? Somebody dropped you off. Brian and Robert down at his house. Somebody dropped them off down. Somebody drove them down there. Yeah, because neither one of them had a vehicle. Uh-huh. Who was it? I don't know. I was sleeping at that time. I went to bed. I went to bed before they left. Out of all these people that you mentioned that had knowledge about what happened, was it one of them? And he ultimately did confess, I guess, to being at the residence and that he was driven there by Misty. And then after that, Misty, Misty came home. I don't think she was. You know, so we just drove down there and you and Misty. Yeah. Ryan admits that he's been lying, protecting his friend Misty, because, in his words, she did nothing wrong. You said you and Bri- you, you said Brian and Robert were with you. I, I, I was lying. You didn't want to get so, Missy in trouble, or? Well, she didn't do nothing wrong. So I mean, you didn't want to get her involved, or? Yeah. Who is Misty? Misty Jones. Is that her real name, Misty? Yes. Yeah. How old is she? 16. Where does she go to school? She, she goes to homeschool. Who are her parents? Her mother, New Salem. In New Salem? Now, Misty was somewhat unknown to me at this point. Um, um, I had heard her name before, but I had zero expectation that she was involved to the degree she was involved. Um, Came as a, a really big surprise to me. Let's pause briefly so I can explain what Ryan said really happened that night. Ryan said that he went to bed at about 12.30 a.m. early Thursday morning. He said that he had since learned that Misty, Robert, and Brian left the house at about 1 a.m. in Misty's car. 
The next thing he remembered happening himself was that Misty returned to the house on East Sweet Avenue at about 4.30 a.m. and woke him up. Now, what Misty Jones first said to Ryan when she woke him up, that is something that's still a little unclear because reports vary depending on when the interviews were conducted. At first, the story is that Misty said, your friends need your help or we need your help. In later interviews, her first words become something else, either our psycho friends really did it or our insane friends went over the insanity limit. Regardless of what Misty actually said when she woke Ryan, both of them, Misty and Ryan, got into Misty's red Geo Metro and they drove back down to the house on Laredo Drive in the dark at about 4.30 or 5 a.m. Ryan said that when they got there, Brian and Robert and the pickup truck were already gone. The lights were on in the house and the front door was locked. Ryan said he looked into the house through a window next to the front door and he saw fresh blood in the hallway and on the stairs. It was then that he understood that this whole thing was no joke. He told Misty, take me home, where he crawled back into bed, only to be woken up again an hour or so later by Robert and Brian when they wanted help dumping the bodies. Ryan said he did not help anyone load any bodies in a truck, and certainly he did not help them dump bodies outside of town. It should be noted also that there are witness sightings of Brian and Robert at about 5 a.m. in Bismarck with the pickup at a gas station. They were buying cigarettes and smoking them. It is plausible then that when Misty and Ryan arrived at the Ericsted home, Robert and Brian had just left. Misty and Ryan then turned around and went back to East Sweet Avenue, arriving there before Robert and Brian came looking for help. In the other interview room, Detective Shaner would also ultimately hear the name Misty Jones. But the girl he was interviewing, 17-year-old Candy Ozeski, didn't tell him that Misty Jones drove the boys to the Ericstead home before the murders. She told him something else. And in fact, Candice or Candy never did tell you, really. No, no. She, when I left the room for the second or third time, um, I came back in and I said, you know, we need to know. And she had apparently, she told her mother and then her mother had indicated that Candace had told her that it was Misty who had helped dispose of the bodies. You know, a person struggles with how could you know about what happened to them and not come forward and not tell the truth about what you knew and do so willingly to not understand the gravity of right and wrong uh, in this way, um, to be conflicted in terms of loyalty to the truth, loyalty to your friends. The fact that we had to pull the truth out of so many people who didn't just come forward with it willingly was really hard to swallow back then. Still to come on future episodes of Dakota Spotlight Season 3, the house on Sweet and 7th. And tell them that about a dozen units from the Bismarck Police Department 
an equipment truck, generators, and a helicopter are on their way south of Mandan. I was dozing off kind of, and then Robert came and goes, what's wrong with you? I go, nothing, I'm just, I'm just tired and bored. He's like, well, I'm gonna tell you something, I don't want you to get in trouble for it. I'm like, what? Two people died, they died horrendous death, and yet these kids were idolizing the people that did it to them. My stomach dropped. I was like, that could have been you. You don't know what could have happened there. It's not a 500-piece puzzle. This is a puzzle with thousands of pieces. And it, it still, to this day, baffles me. You guys were at Brian's house around 745 yeah, or 730? 730 because A started at 8. Okay. Like 730, 745. I've left at 745. And still to this day, it's like a movie in my head. Like a movie in my head. The House on Sweet and 7th is hosted and reported by me, James Wallner, and is a production of Forum Communications Company. Don't miss the accompanying mini-documentary, The House on Sweet and 7th, which will be available on any North Dakota Forum Communications website. That's the Grand Forks Herald, the Jamestown Sun, the Dickinson Press, and Inforum.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.